0: Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about *Aguirre: The Wrath of God* from uh, Werner Herzog in 1972. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Happy New Year, Sam.
0: Barrett, I know that uh, Herzog is one of your uh, one of your favorites. Is that is that fair to say? Or somebody? Your...
1: Sure to say. Yeah, that's accurate. All
0: right. Uh, so what is I'm going to ask you a lot of what is your history questions to kick this off. Sure. start with what is your history with this film?
1: Okay. The history with this film. Um, I can't remember how long I knew about it before I saw it. Probably a couple of years, but it would have been in say the spring of 1980. Um, and I was uh, the year I graduated from college. We had a local uh, little small art cinema. I've mentioned in the past kind of like trial on cinema. And they were showing agiri. and um, Amy and I went to see it. and unbeknownst to both of us, Amy was actually we were dating at the time now my wife, she was in the process of getting ill. And so by the time the film ended, she was running one hundred and four degree temperature. And so, in a sense, my history of the film is is to a large extent her history of the film because, she could never be quite sure whether all those monkeys on the raft were actually there or whether at that point she was hallucinating. How so, perfect
0: is that? How
1: perfect is that for that movie? Exactly. So, it's, you know, because at the end of the film, you have this whole question of, you know, are they really seeing the boat in the tree really hallucinating? And that's exactly how Amy experienced the film. And I guess I kind of did vicariously as well. So it seems to me to be the perfect Herzogian experience to watch one of those films in a fever dream because well, his films are, in many respects, fever dreams.
0: I was going to say, you know, people sometimes talk about, you know, if they ever meet this celebrity or this, like, like what would be the story that would get you into the conversation? You have a perfect one. That is great. <laughs> if you ever meet him, you can tell you can tell that story. Now, it's interesting. So you saw this 1980. That's not long after it, it finally came to the U.S. Because this was made in 1972. But it, from my reading, it sounds like it wasn't until 1977 that this uh, made its way to the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So my my previous history with Herzog. The reason I was interested in Herzog was I was a German English double major as an undergraduate, and so one of our assignments in my German classes we were given um, a German magazine, probably Der Spiegel or something like that, and just pick an article interest to you. And so I happened to pick an article about the the German New Wave cinema, uh, and so that's got that's what got me. That's when I first read about Herzog. I read about Fassbinder. So I got really interested in German film. So I think this was probably the first Herzog film I saw. Because at the time, you know, there wasn't... much. People weren't watching DVDs or or even VHSs. So you just had to wait for a cinema to show it.
0: Um, So what makes... uh, And and I think I'm starting to... I was telling you before we started that I kind of went down a, a Herzog rabbit hole this weekend. So I think I'm starting to have a sense of how you might answer this question, but what makes a Herzog movie a Herzog movie?
1: Um, Herzog is interested in extremes of human behavior. He's, he's interested in extremes of geography. That's why he, you know, it's something like Aguero, which is filmed, you know, on location. um, He's interested in extreme, he's interested in people who do either extreme things or odd things. He often makes films about people who have very odd vocations or or actually odd obsessions. I would say that for Herzog, when people are obsessed with something, uh, when people relentlessly follow one thing the way he follows filmmaking, that's what he finds finds most interesting. So he looks in the extremes of human behavior to try to figure out what the nature of humanity is. To, so to me, there's always something kind of... Um, there's something kind of off kilter about any Herzog film, but it's it's in it's in putting things off kilter that he helps you to try to see how things look right side up, if that makes any sense, or maybe they don't make any sense right side up. He's not really sure.
0: That's really fascinating because he, along with directing feature films, he's also uh, a pretty prolific documentary filmmaker as well. Um, and it it's interesting the way you describe that, like you know sort of interested in people with obsessions i mean that's that is uh my favorite errol morris movies i would describe in in a similar vein in that way so um and it's interesting because when you watch this when you watch this movie this has a, it has a, an amazing opening shot um but it also feels like a documentary shot and a lot of this movie actually feels like it's shot in documentary or shot in that in that way even in terms of there's water or smudges on the lenses when they're in the jungle at certain points uh, and even the way the the priest's uh voiceover works kind of feels like i keep i kept having to remind myself this isn't a documentary about these people going out into the jungle to tell a story this is a feature film telling this story it just feels like a documentary
1: well i think i think there's a couple reasons for that sam i think part of it is just just because everything is shot on location and chronologically. So the way the film unfolds chronologically is exactly the way it was shot. It's And it's it's almost as though Herzog was making both Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness at the same time. Exactly. Uh, and it's a very subjective camera. And uh, you know, one of the articles I've about uh, this pointed out that the camera really is part of the expedition. Uh, and so you, you don't have the distance. I mean, you do get a few shots, you know, from the shore of, of the raft. Most of the time when you see the raft, you're on the raft or you're evidently in a raft right next to it. But before I forget, since you said Errol Morris, I want to be sure I touch on this. Did you discover the Errol Morris-Vanerhead Herdside connection?
0: Yes. Yeah. I think you told this story, um, when we talked about fast, cheap, and out of control, although I didn't make that connection until, watching this and reading about it and I encountered this story uh, as well. So you can tell it again, though. I think it's a good one. Yeah, well,
1: that, that for the audience, that may not have heard that before. But yeah, there's a short documentary called, called uh, Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. Um, and it's available on YouTube, evidently. Uh, and it's because it was Herzog who, in a way, in, in an effort to stimulate Errol Morris to finish Gates of Heaven. I uh, told him that if Morris got it made, he would eat his shoe, and in fact, he does. Um, and That short documentary was made by Les Blank, who went on to make a great documentary about Herzog's um, uh, subsequent film with Kinski, uh, Fitzcarraldo, which is very similar. Another film made about uh, this guy who wants to ha- have an opera house in the middle of the Amazon. And Les Blank's film, Burden of Dreams, uh is in some ways an even better film than Fitzcarraldo just as Hearts of Darkness is just as good a film in some ways as Apocalypse Now
0: yeah I I will say I have not seen Fitzcarraldo but the amount that I read about that movie uh it was quite a bit because it's it's fascinating to me because um like you said Herzog is he both is interested in people with these obsessions but he also in that case wants to do what they did like like they actually move a ship over over yeah. not a mountain exactly, but over this big hill, right? Like it's a, so. It's a movie about a person who's trying to do this impossible thing, and in doing it, he does the thing,
1: yes. which yes. is
0: fascinating. Yeah. Uh, which which brings me to to one of my uh, one of the lines that struck me from this movie that seems to reflect uh, maybe what Herzog is doing a little bit. It's towards the end of the movie. Uh, Agiri says, "We will stage history as other stage plays," yeah. and I thought man this feels like what what he's
1: doing too oh exactly yeah exactly it's uh yeah the um it's it's that it's that self-referential quality the 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 the, but at the same time it's it's not self-referential in the way that it's kind of like art for art's sake it's art and, and life that there's no boundary between art and life in a way with what Herzog does so you know staging the film is the same thing as kind of it, it that in itself is a historical act with its own, with its own validity.
0: And I'm just trying to think what direction uh, to go here. Let's just d- jump into it. So I, one of the things I wrote in my notes, cause this is where I spent a lot of time is I think we need to talk about Klaus Kinski, but I don't even know exactly how to get into. So let's, <laughs> let's maybe start with his performance in this movie and then we can, um, we can maybe move out from there. Okay uh so what are your thoughts i mean because this is definitely uh a movie with with one particular actor deeply at the center of it um and that is kinski as uh as the titular aguirre um you've thoughts about this performance i mean um herzog this is the first movie that they did together and he really wanted to work with him um because he actually had experiences with him as a child. When, when Herzog was 13, they lived in the same boarding house. So he, uh, had pretty, uh, strange experiences with Kinski. Um, can you talk a little bit about the performance?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit too, for those who are wondering. So yeah, they were three months together in the same boarding house in uh, 1956 or 55. And at one point Kinski, sh- sh- uh, locked himself in the communal bathroom for 48 hours. Uh, when he finally emerged, he had completely destroyed the bathroom. I mean, clearly, you know, with, with Kinski, there, there, there really are interesting questions about what is the line between art and life, because he depicts madmen um, and obsessives, but in so many ways, he, he was probably, I mean, he, he was mad, and he, or at least at least he's been diagnosed as psychopathic. So, in a way, the performance that Kinsky gives as Aguirre is, is, in some respects, it's just kind of Kinsky being Kinsky. Um, at the same time, um, one of the interesting things about the relationship was Herzog was always having to kind of rein, rein Kinsky in. Kinsky was always uh, threatening to quit. Um, there's, there's so many stories around Kinsky and, and Herzog, and it becomes almost impossible. To kind of disentangle fact from fiction, uh, you know. So, for example, there's the story that um, Herzog uh, threatened Kinski um, at gunpoint uh, that if that if Kinski didn't uh, didn't didn't go on, he would he would shoot him. Kinski says that's ridiculous. I'm the only one who had a gun, and in fact, he supposedly shot the tip of a finger off one of the crewmen. Uh, there's also the story that the Indians who were working on the the, the film with uh, Herzog uh, told, <laughs> told Herzog they would kill Kinski uh for him um which by the way is a little aside there is a there is a short video on youtube available called please kill mr Kinsky," which is about um so about, about how difficult kinski was in a later film in the 80s so bad he was so difficult that the producer actually wanted to kill him and collect the insurance money um <laughs> but but, but I, mean, I think that you know the thing about this performance is that um it's, it's, a very, it's an interesting performance because it's both um, a very full, what you might call a full-body performance. He has physical characteristics that I think are intended to be a bit reminiscent of Richard III, uh, you know, the kind of the, the hunched-back, limping Shakespearean character. Uh, in real life, the real Aguirre did have a limp uh, from, a, from, a, from an injury, so that's historically accurate. But the film is also full of lots of close-ups of faces. Um, Aguirre's face, most notably. And, you know, Kinski's got those eyes. Uh, And the way his eyes kind of bulge out at you, it's like, it's it's almost feral. It's almost like there's an animalistic uh, quality about it. Yet at the same time, it's kind of kept under control behind those. He's got those full kind of cruel lips. So it's a fascinating face. And Herzog just, I mean, the camera just kind of keeps coming back to it again and again and again.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I am so glad that I watched the movie without knowing anything about it or anything or anything about him, um, because then I was able to to do a dive. So I did watch uh, last night. I watched uh, Kinski or uh, excuse me, Herzog in 1999 made a movie called My Best Fiend um, about his relationship with Kinski, which has a lot of uh, footage of Aguirre sort of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I guess also speaking to the documentary feel of this, there were moments where I was watching clips in that movie and I couldn't tell for a while, is this a scene from the movie or is this yeah. something that actually happened? And then all of a sudden you saw somebody in modern dress and we're like, oh, okay, this is, this is like a real thing. Um, So, I mean, that also sort of speaks to how, how those were shot, but um, I, I was fascinated by Kinski as an actor mm-hmm. and by the performance. Um, And then I was, I, I don't know what to do and we don't need to get into to this conversation entirely, but like, I don't know what to do with him. The more that I learned about him because <sighs> I guess partially I can take some comfort in some of this is mixed up in myth and some of, you know, like, like I can tell Herzog is both trying to um, take apart some of the, the myth that Kinski tells about himself, but at the same time, I don't know that I trust that Herzog isn't just creating another myth, Yeah. Um, but he's also so clearly. Even in Herzog's film is so clearly not well <laughs> that like, I just, I, I struggle with this, with the, like, um, and this is maybe a, a, a broader picture about art. Like I struggle with, okay. At what point does it cross into a kind of irresponsibility on Herzog's part? And yeah, so I don't know. Like, I'm glad that I didn't know those things when I watched it because I'm sure I'll watch this movie again, and it will be in a in a interesting way filled with thinking about Kinski more broadly. Um, but I, I have to say, like the the uh, the the documentary that he made about his relationship with Kinski was fascinating, and the footage in that is fascinating, and the multi layers you get of this artist who you know maybe a genius as an actor but also is a deeply disturbed person and a seemingly a deeply dangerous person um you know in weird in weird ways it made me think of um Andy Kaufman yeah, yeah <laughs> like, like, like like so he does and this is actually the thing he did before Aguirre he was doing this Jesus Christ tour where he would just get up on stage and berate people and people mm-hmm. would come and yell at him. And it's, and I thought of Andy Kaufman mm-hmm. in that, um, although I love Andy Kaufman and I don't know what I feel about Klaus Kinski, you know, like it's this, this sort of weird, it was, I find him, I just want to know more about him, but I'm also afraid of what I would learn if I learned more about him. So it's, it's well, an interesting thing.
1: Yeah. And I think I was like a recent incarnation phenomenon is whatever the, whatever it was that Joaquin Phoenix was doing a few years ago. Right. I mean, there was this, Real question. I, maybe it's been settled that he was acting. I don't know, but I, I remember watching him and thinking, "Is it ethical for me to watch a person actually behave insanely in public, even if he's asking us to do that?" And I think that that was ultimately what he was doing: as performance art, you know, trying to raise, trying to raise those those questions. So you could you could say, in a way, it's the ultimate method acting, right? Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's what Kaufman was all about. But with Kaufman, it really became unclear as to at what point was this actually a delusion. That he was fully fully committed to. Um, Jim Carrey has toyed with that a little bit as well, and Christian Bale does too. You know, uh, the idea of you know, and Christian Bale, by the way, made a film with uh, with Herzog, one of his better films, Rescue Dawn, uh, in which Bale actually eats a, a live snake. Um, but anyway, so it, it does it does raise those interesting questions about what what is okay um, both to do and and to de- to depict.
0: Yeah yeah no, absolutely. and and I think tied to that, another question that I had, and we could kind of step away from Kinski, um I would say, listeners, if you're interested, it is fascinating. like like he is he's a fascinating figure to look at, but there's going to be darkness around it at the same time. Uh, but okay, so to step away from that, as you think about this movie, how much of the greatness of this movie, not unlike a film like Apocalypse Now, is tied into the creation of it? like the difficulty of creating it. I mean, because it is the kind of thing I was watching and I, and I kept thinking, how did they, how did he do this? How did he get this shot or, or like, what must, what, how must they have done this? Like, and, and I don't say that as a negative. I think you say that as a positive. I think, I think that makes apocalypse now that I think um, Roger Ebert also talked about 2001, a space odyssey in the same way that there's sort of the, the, the story behind the making of it is, is, is as interesting as the thing itself. So how much of the greatness of the film is tied to that? Or how much just on its own merits do you think it's it stands up?
1: I, I, that's, a good, that's a good question, Sam. Um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm going to answer it by not answering it initially, but I, I feel much more that way about Fitzcarraldo. I feel like when I watch Fitzcarraldo, I'm much more aware of the difficulty of making Fitzcarraldo. I feel like with Aguirre, there's something about... Um, and maybe it gets back to what we were saying earlier about the way the the way this seems almost indistinguishable from a documentary and it's got this very subjective camera. I just find myself forgetting, to be frank, that I'm watching something filmed. I, I find it I find it very immersive in, in, in that in that respect. And I'm just kind of accepting what I'm seeing almost as though I, I'm part of the expedition, which is I think what the camera actually does. So I, I really didn't find myself thinking about it. I mean, there were a few times when you know, when they wake up and the flood has destroyed their, their rafts, that really happened. Right. And I happen to know that. That the, And one of the things that Herzog was doing was he was rewriting the script as the, as the film went on. Um, Yeah. And I knew that in my head, but when I'm watching it, I'm not, I'm not really thinking about that. I feel like I just get totally, I get totally sucked in.
0: Right. And I want to, I, I want to edit what I, the question I asked a little bit, because I don't mean it like that so much as like I was mm-hmm. thinking about how did these, this film crew do this? And I was also thinking about how did Spanish conquistadors do this? Like, like, how did you, how, how could you, even the mission at the very beginning where he's like, okay, 40 of you build these rafts and go down the river and come back in a week. And I just like, my head was spinning with that. And my head was spinning with just how hard everything seemed. And then I realized, well, the people making this had to deal with almost all of that too and so like to that degree it was just like like um yeah i was thinking of it historically different it's difficult in that way too and you know and in that way like like you said i love the way that it felt like the camera was because it was was on that especially that big raft that they had for the second half of the film um it almost felt like a stage play on this raft and you were a character in it almost and you would it's like you would walk around and talk with other people, but you kept coming back to Aguirre. And I just, yeah, I think it's brilliant.
1: And and, and his and his and some of the things that made it hard, in, in addition to the difficulty that they had, as it was, um, the presence of the women. You know, especially the sedan chair. I mean, that's historically accurate. Those those women really were brought on that expedition. That seems completely insane. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, ex- exactly. You look at that, you think know, like how in that. How did they do that? It's hard enough to do it in the 20th century.
0: Right. I I will say another movie it made me think of, and I don't know that there's any DNA between these, but um, I I always loved the movie, The Mission. And both in terms of the setting, there's some things, but but that movie in a different kind of way deals with just the difficulty of that. In that case, uh, the difficulty of doing missions work and of, uh with with these native people and in dealing with the politics of spain and portugal and the climbing up the the waterfall like like i i was thinking about some of those scenes in the mission that have this um i mean tedium in the best possible kind of way like like because the the tedium makes it feel real a little bit too So, so it made me think of that um just everything they had to do how complicated it would
1: have to be yeah that's actually been cited by at least one critic as that um Aguirre has been cited as a, as an influence on the mission. Um, uh, and also other films like Terrence Malick's The New World.
0: I want to get into some of the, uh, some of the ideas in the film, because I, again, not knowing what it was going to be about, I was really, um, kind of taken aback when the, the little revolution or coup happens and they write their kind of declaration of independence. And I thought that was really fascinating to think because i just didn't see that coming i thought this was just going to be this these folks who went down the river i didn't realize the direction that this story was going to tell us but it made me think a lot about um the idea of colonialism post-colonialism the idea of revolutions the idea that you know uh history is written by the victors and i think about agira and like you see i watch this and i think about oh this is this kind of madman continuing to kind of go go crazy as people are dying off but it's also if they had been successful like aren't they just a group like the american revolutionaries to a certain degree saying we are gonna we are going to tear apart our bonds with spain and we are going to forge something new for ourselves so i mean it made me think about those things and then i was thinking about in the 50s 60s 70s really throughout the 20th century it's the century of revolutions of people throwing off colonial powers or Marxist revolutions, these types of things. Um, so I was trying to think about this film in 1972, thinking about this idea of revolutions in that way as well. And it, it was really interesting to think about.
1: Yeah. It's, it, and that's a, that's a really good point, Sam, because I think it also helps to explain why Aguirre, and this is true of the real life Aguirre as well, why he was um, anxious, even eager to be defined as a traitor. Um, I mean, he he wanted to make it clear that he was standing up against uh, the the system. Although he's not motivated by any particular political agenda, right? I mean, he's not even motivated by lust for gold. Um, he, he, that, that's what the the guys want. He says power and fame. That's that that's what it's all about. So you get this really interesting combination of this naked ambition. At the same time, and this was, I think it's part of staging history, right? literally staging history, literally setting this guy up as emperor of, um, of El Dorado and recognizing that on the one hand, you have these rituals, these ceremonies, these conventions that you need to follow. But at the same time, you're completely undermining and rejecting them. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really interestingly Satirical moment when that declaration gets read, right? Because in in one, one respect it makes no sense whatsoever, but in another respect he has to do it because that represents what he's rebelling against, what he's what he's rejecting. We, yeah, we, no. we at least hope that things like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, had some kind of motivating ideas behind them. Whereas Aguirre is, I mean, it's the Napoleon, the Napoleonic great man of history, in a sense, uh, kind of laid bare.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the number of times he brings up Cortez and the thing he seems interested in, in Cortez is that people know who Cortez is. It's like, so so people will know who Aguirre is. Um, and it's, and, and so he's, it's like, he's trying to, um, again, I, I go back to, to staging history, right? He's trying to Create a narrative where his name will go down. I think about this when we study Western Civ, and um, I did a once I I made a uh, sort of visual for our students of like uh, that had basically was a, a simple bar graph that had every century that we study in the course this Western Civ course that goes back to you know 500 BC, and I just graphed the number of people that we name that live in each century, and it's crazy how it's like in certain centuries there's one name. That I mean, you know, like if you think about the the 300s, there's, you know, you have uh, you have Plato, Aristotle and Alexander the Great. And most people, even historians, uh, without looking up something, can't name another person from that hundred year period of time where a lot of important stuff is happening. So it's like he's trying to carve his name, you know, in a in a. Uh, uh, failed, folly-filled sort of way, trying to carve his name in history. You know that that this is, you know, so that, that's that kind of it's such an interesting kind of ambition, like you said, because it's not about greed; it's about how how can I be remembered in that way? That's really fascinating to think about.
1: And, and and that's one of the things that surprised me watching the film again, Sam. That um, at the end, I I had a much different view of Aguirre than I thought I would have. Um. And at the end, I mean, even though, and this is maybe, maybe something one shouldn't say that I'm not saying I admired Agira, but I realized he, he had a pure vision, <laughs> even, even, it, even if it was depraved, right? I mean, he is, and this gets back to kind of the issue about the relationship between the film and, and, and life, because, I, I mean, what is the difference between Agira in his quest and Herzog in his quest? You know that um, what, what you know. What's the difference between the imagination that results in beautiful works of art and the imagination that results in in death and destruction? And I think that's to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier about what interests Herzog. I think that's one of the things that interests Herzog because Herzog knows that he himself has those destructive tendencies within. And in a way, Kinski is Herzog's alter ego. I mean, that's that's another reason why they have that that relationship. Mm-hmm. So even at the end, you know, when, when, when Aguirre gives that speech, which I think ties into another uh, historical reference in the film, and that is to, not, to Nazism uh, and the whole notion of Hitler's pure Aryan race, right? Which is one reason why Aguirre gets cast as blonde and blue-eyed, which the historical Aguirre was definitely not. Because I think uh, Herzog wants us to think about um, the kind of the, the, the Third Reich and that kind of vision of dominating history.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really interesting to think about because that was one of the things that jumped out at me is one of these folks does not look like a Spanish explorer. (laughs) You know, so when it first started, I thought, well, that's strange casting. But you're right. You know, as as you as you go further, those uh, a line like that jumps out at you at, you know, towards the towards the very end of that uh, towards the very end of the movie. I think there's there are a couple interesting moments in him trying to. uh, him trying to sort of write, write his story and, you know, one of them is, and this reminded me of a moment from Apocalypse Now when the, the other raft is caught in the eddy and they go over there and they realize that they're dead. And then there's this discussion about how, well, we need to bring them a Christian burial and Agira uh, decide, you know, this is where he says we need to make sure there's not rust on the cannon and has the guy, you know, basically blow up the raft. Um, sort of as another and this is right before they have their revolution but it's also sort of severing their ties with god too to be like okay well we don't actually need to do that we can forge ahead right so he has this and it reminds me of of um when willard shoots the the wounded old woman you know after they shoot up that boat and Mm. and um chief is like well we have to bring her to wherever and willard just shoots her and says i'm in control of this i mean that is that seemed like a like an almost a, a Copula quote of Agira right there. It's like no, no, this is what we're doing now. We're no longer we are severing our ties to these rules that we need to follow.
1: Uh, but what's what, what's interesting. The other thing that I had not forgotten, Sam, which goes along with this, is or I had forgotten is that Agira never takes direct action. Every, everything happens at his, at his command. So they fire the cannon. The guy that gets beheaded. You know, mm-hmm. there's uh, the the hanging the hanging of of, of uh, the original leader of the expedition. all of that, and and you don't even know who kills the emperor, right? When the, after the emperor is dead, it, you never see Aguirre take any direct action, and yet everything is being controlled by him.
0: Well, and that actually leads to the other scene that I was thinking of that 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 really struck, jumped out at me, and struck me was in the trial, right? Aguirre has no role in the trial, right? and he thinks everything is playing out as he wants. And then the new emperor grants clemency and the look on his face, yeah. it, because it's, it, it's, it sort of reminds me of, um, okay, this is probably a, a a jump too far, but it reminds me of um, thinking of like a, like a Nietzsche Superman and surrounded yeah. by people who aren't willing to go as far as he is. He's just like, how can you, how can, like, like I have just created you into this thing and you're not willing to, to utilize that power that I gave you. And you're, you're falling back on these old ideas of clemency and things like this. Um, and that's sort of the beginnings of his severing with the with this idea of the emperor. Like the emperor is just a uh, a stage on the way to the history he wants to write. Like I, I found that moment really fascinating.
1: Well, but what's interesting though, Sam, is that Aguirre can't, abrog- he won't abrogate the rules, right? Because he still, he still, I mean, what, what makes him a mastermind in a sense is that he figures out how to manipulate the system. He doesn't completely undermine it in the same way that Hitler, right? Hitler figured out how to manipulate and exploit the German political system. He didn't simply, I mean, the putsch fails. So mm-hmm. he has to go back and he has to try, quote, more more kind of legitimate means. It, it, it reminds me of the idea that, um, you know, when you, I've also taught that Western civilization course with you. And uh, I remember for some reason talking at one point about, you um, uh, the punishment for counterfeiters um, that, and and, w- and one of the things that makes the 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 most effective counterfeit is that which looks most like the real thing, not the thing that looks the least like the real thing. So Aguirre is an effective counterfeiter because he makes what he's doing look legitimate when in fact it isn't. If he truly were a madman at that moment of the trial, right, he would have whipped out a sword and just dispatched the guy himself, but he knows he can't do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, and is why he is truly in the, in the, in the etymological sense of the word, he is truly diabolical. Hmm. Um, you know, so, cause he really knows as the, you know, the devil can quote scripture to his own advantage. He really knows the system well enough that he's undermining to, he knows how to play by the rules in order to break the rules.
0: Um, how about, so he gives himself this title, of the wrath of God, and he starts to refer to himself as the wrath of God. Um, Talk to me about your thoughts on that as a as a, a self proclaimed title.
1: Well, you know, it, it may or may not be a reference to uh, Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great. You know, Shakespeare's contemporary, Christopher Marlowe, Tamburlaine the Great called himself the uh, both the scourge and the and the wrath of the wrath of God. Well, I mean, to me, you know, in a, in a film that talks that is so um, critical of, of the ecclesiastical establishment. Right, the, you've got the priest saying that God is always on the side of the strong, um, which is exactly what happened with the church that cooperated with Hitler, of course, right? They aligned mm-hmm. itself with political powers. So there's a sense in which he's the wrath of God. Um, the death and destruction he brings upon the whole expedition, in a way, that is an expression, you could say, of the, of the wrath of God to what these conquistadors. Are, are, are doing. So for, for Aguirre, it's simply, you know, self-aggrandizement. But I think for Herzog, it becomes a kind of commentary on exactly what, uh, how God actually is working out his wrath in a really unexpected way.
0: Yeah. I have to say, I loved this movie. And the more we talk about it, the more I think, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about this connection. So so uh, this is this is a movie, even as we talk, is sort of rising in my estimations you know I, I think about we've we've watched i think 39 movies at this point and i you know in my head i sort of i don't have like a full ranking of those movies but there is sort of this sense of like okay well like where does this movie fit in with that and and again as i as i read more and watch more and even as we've talked about this i um, this movie is one that I definitely want to go back to and, and watch again. And thankfully it's on Amazon prime. So it's, if you have a prime membership, you can just go, uh, go watch it, uh, go watch it again. Uh, what are other things you want to talk about with this movie?
1: Well, I want to pick up on what you said a minute ago, Sam. And that is that, um, I think that the film, I think one of the reasons why one can watch this film again and again is that it's, it's, it operates almost like a piece of poetry, uh, in part because of how beautifully it's filmed. And, um, and how meditative it is. I guess you know one of the things that oh, when I went out on the on the uh, on the web to kind of look at people who talked about Apocalypse Now in dialogue with or this couple of websites which is Apocalypse Now versus Aguirre, right? And 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 they name all these kind of features of the film and in in, in most of these stupid comparisons Aguirre loses out because Apocalypse Now is so much more action oriented and all that. But to me, Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now is more like you're you're experiencing a story from from be, with a beginning, a middle, and an, and an end with a lot of narration. And with Aguirre, you're more experiencing a kind of a poetic meditation. Um, it's not a film that has um it, it doesn't really build in narrative tension. It's more like it it decreases as, 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 as the expedition gets kind of cut down. Um it's it's about a kind of a loss or a kind of winnowing away, which I, I find you know kind of very, uh, uh, very compelling. So a couple of things I want to mention, and I didn't actually realize this, so I I did some rereading on the film. Uh, it, it, it it was originally shot in English, um, so you know you'll notice there's what looks like post syncing problems, um, but it's because uh, Herzog wasn't happy with the English soundtrack, decided to redub it into German, but then. Kinski would not um, dub his would not dub his lines because he demanded a ridiculous price that that Herzog wouldn't pay. So the actual w- words you hear coming out of Aguirre's mouth are not is not actually Kinski's voice. Um, and evidently, if you get the DVD, you actually have the English language version on the DVD, and so you can hear Kinski's Kinski's hmm. English. Um, I do th- I, I I do I do think it is. Um, one of the other things I wanted to bring up is I do think it's a very uh, anti-colonial film, especially in terms of its its criticism of the church. Um, And one of the things that is interesting about the film is that supposedly it's narrated from the priest's diary. And one of the continuity issues that one doesn't really think about is the fact that the priest dies. So how is it exactly that we got his diary? Um, Well,
0: you you also get the line where he says uh, that the one of the people drank his ink thinking it was medicine, but it's like, but then how are we reading this line if you can't write?
1: But, but, but it's one of those things where you end up, I think, uh, not even noticing or think or thinking about that. Right. What, one of the great stories about this film, as you said earlier with, with Herzog, it's just impossible to know what's fact and what's fiction. But one of the stories is that he paid the natives to round up those monkeys. They were on the raft at the end. But then the monkeys got sold instead to an American zoo. And supposedly uh, Kinski went with a friend to the airport posing as a veterinarian saying Herthog the monkey shots before they could be shipped. And that's how he supposedly got them back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. But as you said, you know, uh, Herzog is kind of a rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. And I think there's just so many, there's so many stories about him. One um, of the things
0: if we're thinking about this, you know, in conversation with Apocalypse Now, one of the things that I like about this, and we talked last week when we talked about Apocalypse Now, of the all the Willard narration, um, is that this film has a voiceover narrator, but it's not Aguirre. You don't get into his head, you, you, like the route into his head is, are the things you see him do, the physicality of his body, some of the, he gives a couple speeches, and his eyes. You know, and, and and like so, so I so I feel like unlike Willard, where you get where, you know, uh, and it sounds like Coppola, you know, didn't initially have voiceover in there, but then we have to, we have to get into Willard's head a little bit. Like in Aguirre, you don't get that, and I think that's I actually like that, I, because then it forces you to, um, pay attention to what he's doing um, on the ship, uh, you know that there's 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 less talk there's less of Aguirre talking than there is of Willard talking. Uh, you know, in that way, and I really like that.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the other element of the film that we haven't talked at all about, which I think is important because it's it, it figures so heavily at the beginning and then again at the end, is the is the music. Um, that very, uh, I, I forget the name of that instrument that was that he that he used, and it's actually interesting that the German group is named for um, one of the uh, I think it's one of the Incan uh, Incan myths, Opal View. Um, But that music, which has a kind of um, otherworldly quality to it, almost a kind of ecclesiastical, dreamy quality to it, I think that that opening and closing the film, it kind of sets, helps kind of set the mood of the film. Um, Roger Ebert said something really interesting about Herzog. He said, um, connecting this with the music, he says of modern filmmakers, Werner Herzog is the most visionary and the most obsessed with great themes. He does not want to tell a plotted story, record amusing dialogue. He wants to lift us up into realms of wonder. Only a handful of modern films share the audacity of his vision. I think of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Apocalypse Now. Among active directors, the one who seems as messianic as Oliver Stone, there's a kind of saintly madness in the way they talk about their work. They cannot be bothered with conventional success because they reach for transcendence. Um, and I don't think he's a transcendental filmmaker in the sense that, say, uh, Paul Schrader defines transcendental, but I think there is a sense that he is interested, even though, personally, he's not a person of faith, he is interested in something transcendental, which I think for him is the imagination. Um, I think, ultimately, that's really what Aguirre is about. It's about the power, both the destructive and the creative power of of the imagination.
0: Uh, last question, um, the, so the, as the, the, um, trip down the river continues, you know, the, the, the number of people get smaller and smaller until it's just a gear on the ship. And then all of a sudden we have the shot with all the monkeys. And I mean, and it's just sort of, it goes from nothing to overrun. Um, what is, what do you see as the meaning of that?
1: Well, I, I think part of it is the, the, the monkeys are expressions of the, the true antagonist in the film, which is the jungle itself. Um, and even though there's no evidence that Herzog read Heart of Darkness, um, Herzog says he's read very little, a quote, on practically illiterate. Um, I think that he's reflecting that theme of Heart of Darkness, the notion that, uh, now in this case, it's not savagery. You know, for Conrad, the jungle is, is a kind of savagery and a reversion to primitivism. Um, I think for Herzog, eh, the symbolism is nature, um, that this human effort to overcome nature, to impose your will on nature, uh, ultimately is, is futile. There, of course, is also the fact that the monkeys are proto-humans. Uh, and so there's that kind of evolutionary uh, uh, element to it as well. But to me, it's it's the, it's the ultimately the triumph of, of the jungle. And the Indians in the film are not expressive of savagery necessarily, even though they have that encounter with the cannibals. I think they're more of these natural forces uh, that the conquistadors cannot overcome.
0: Absolutely. Um, One of the other really um, interesting haunting images in the movie, as it gets more and more uh, to the point where you're questioning what you see is when you see Inez all of a sudden in a different dress, walk out into the jungle and just everybody just stands there and watches her disappear as if she's, going into the cornfield and feel the dreams right like it's just like 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 it. and it's just this interesting moment where you're like is she has she already died and this is her soul is this is her is this her giving up is this her yeah and and again it, it was one of those things where in a movie full of i don't know where where this is going what's going to happen when that happened i just shook my head and was like i i didn't i didn't
1: see that coming <laughs> it is it it is a dream like uh suicide
0: mm-hmm yeah, and it and that seems to kick off. Then sort of where where it goes from there. Anything else you want to you want to talk about with this movie?
1: Well, just if people are going to watch it again or watch it for the first time, just kind of pay attention. I'll I'll you know, do a couple kind of kind of basic film criticism remarks, which is that notice how often um, Herzog shoots circles. Uh, Or refers to circles, uh, the the raft trapped in the eddy, somebody saying at some point we're just going around in circles. So that kind of gets at the futility of what they're trying to do. And then the other thing is the motif of cages, Uh, literal cages or boxes, you know, whether it's the uh, the emperor's uh, enclosure or the outhouse or the cage that the leader is in. Um, there's a lot of images of, of caging and being enclosed in the same way that they're kind of encaged in the forest. In, in, in the, so, and, and so in a sense, they're in a cage, and in that cage, they're simply going, going in circles. So I think he uses that. Um, the wheels of the cannon are, are, are an example of that, of that kind of circular motif. So there's quite a bit of that. And the camera does a lot of circling as well.
0: So if somebody uh, if somebody wanted to go further down the uh, the Herzog rabbit hole, what would be your your next recommendation for if somebody wanted to watch another film from him?
1: Well, you know, there's I, there's a I guess I'd have to say a couple. Uh, well, no, I'm going to say sorry, Sam. I'm going to say three. Uh, if you want to do something kind of in the um, uh, in the Aguirre vein, that I would say, certainly say Fitzcarraldo. Um, if you want to see his version of a Vietnam film, then I would say Rescue Dawn. Uh, if you want to see, I love this film. If you want to see him paired with, of all people, Nicolas Cage, uh, then watch, then watch um, uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Uh, it has nothing to do with the original Bad Lieutenant with Harvey, Harvey Keitel. I still don't know why he chose that title, but it's it's a really freaky. Uh, Herzog, I mean, Herzog and Cage are the perfect pairing in it. <laughs> uh, the other thing I would say, though, is on the documentary side, um, I. I think Grizzly Man uh, is really, you've mentioned my best fiend, but I think Grizzly Man, uh, as well as Encounters at the End of the World are a couple of his better documentaries.
0: Fantastic. So what do you have for us for next week?
1: Well, I'm going to go back to, you know, we went to Apocalypse Now because of Citizen Kane, uh, and then I wanted to go to Aguirre because of Apocalypse Now, but I want to go back to Citizen Kane and then do another film that I'm going to connect to Citizen Kane. And that is we haven't done anything with Eastern cinema. So uh, you mentioned this film a couple weeks ago, uh, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. So I think we, I think we need to do Rashomon and talk about narrative structure.
0: Oh, I am so excited. This is, I love this movie. I haven't seen it since 1999, I think Um, I, 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 yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it next. I was about to break into stories about Rashomon, but we'll talk about it next week. I am really excited to uh, to see this uh, to see this movie again, um, Barrett. Thank you so much for uh, for recommending Agira: The Wrath of God. I will say, you know, we ended the year with uh, with a couple of movies that were sort of right in my comfort zone, sweet spot movies that I'd seen a lot. And then we go from there to uh, to this, which was something that I ha- didn't even have a reference point for. And I really enjoyed it. And I think this movie is a testament to it is both really great and really interesting to watch. But it's also it it, it gains the more you learn about it, the more you read about it, the more you think about it, the more you talk about it. Um, there's, it, it's something that that is so much richer than I even thought when I finished watching it. That there's so much more to it, and I'm and I'm certain we just scratched the surface on things you could read about and think about with this movie. So thank you so much for uh, for recommending it, and we will be back next week to talk about the film Rashomon in the Video Store.